is Your Working Life, a podcast that provides you with tools, inspiration, and resources so you can enjoy your career and love your life. I'm Caroline Dowd Higgins. I'm a speaker and a career and executive coach. And today, I'm just delighted to welcome Amy Gallo to the show. Amy, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Oh my goodness. I was telling you right before the show started, I am an absolute fan of yours. You are the co-host of HBR's Women at Work podcast. And I feel like we are kindred spirits and that we are really passionate about helping women and men thrive in the career world. But today we're going to have a conversation about your new book and you're going to share insights and tools and techniques about how to deal with difficult coworkers. And I just have to tell you, as a career coach, this is one of the number one things that people come to me and say, okay, I've got a difficult coworker. So tell me, why is it important that we get along with our colleagues? Well, let me let me start by saying that I spent a lot of my career thinking that I didn't even need to have any sort of rapport with my colleagues. I would show up, do my work. That was enough, right? You know, and, and the fact that I did actually make friends with people I worked with um, or, you know, even had just pleasant conversations felt like icing on the cake. And I have come to realize that over the years and through my work and reading others' research that that is not icing. That's actually the core of how we are effective, productive, persuasive, that having relationships at work, especially positive ones, are their huge benefits to us as people, to our teams, and to our organizations. And the downsides of not having positive relationships, I mean, neutral relationships are great, even compared to some of these difficult relationships, but the downsides are enormous in that it adds to our stress, it contributes to burnout, we feel disconnected, disengaged. I mean, I can tell you, if you asked me about the jobs I had over the years and measured how close I felt to my colleagues versus how much effort I put in to those that work, um, there's a clear correlation for me personally, and the research backs that up, is that the more likely we are to have uh, the more we have friends and close relationships, the more likely we are to be engaged and um, satisfied uh, with our workplace. Well, and let's pull that thread because you conducted interviews and and compiled more than a decade of research with social psychologists, workplace experts, and, and neuroscientists about dealing with difficult coworkers. So was there something in particular that sparked your interest in, in studying and researching this workplace conflict? You know, it, it's. I think it started when I was a, a management consultant um, before I started writing and doing any of the the research that I, I do now, um, you know, as a management consultant, I would sit in these meetings where people were talking about strategy or culture and sort of big lofty ideas. But what really interested me and intrigued me was the way people interacted in the room and particularly how people in, reacted when someone was being difficult or challenging the status quo or raising an unpopular opinion. And what I saw was that a lot of whether the big lofty ideas actually, you know, were carried out, were successful, were about how people interacted on an interpersonal 
level. And so I, you know, also became personally became very interested because I noticed the thing that would make or break my days was not whether I got through my to-do list, not whether I, you know, my ideas were adopted by others, but about those interactions with my colleagues. And on days where I had tough interactions, I was, you know, stayed up late at night, got woke up in the middle of the night thinking, ruminating about these things, would talk to my roommates or my partner about um, those interactions. And and they really just influenced so much whether I enjoyed the work or whether I felt good about what I was doing. Amy, you discovered common themes that have really presented themselves when it comes to how we approach conflict at work. So help us understand more about that. Yeah. So, and, and are you you're referring to the archetypes? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So what I would notice when I published my first book, The HBR Guide to Dealing with Conflict, is I would give talks and workshops about, you know, what I believed was a straightforward, practical approach to dealing with all types of conflict um, with coworkers. And inevitably, what would happen is at the end of those workshops or talks, sometimes they were virtual, right? Someone would catch me afterwards, either in the chat on the side of the screen or in the elevator going down from the office. And they would say, you know, that was really helpful, but I have this one coworker. <laughs> and it was someone who sort of defied all the rules, right? And and I it, I came to realize that, you know, there were lots of people who, even with the best advice out there about how to resolve conflicts, were dealing with very specific types of people. So what I what I did was come up with the sort of eight common archetypes of difficult coworkers. And these are not mutually exclusive, meaning there's probably people who fit in many of these categories. There are probably people who defy all category categorization, right? There, there are other archetypes as well, but these are the ones I was hearing most about in my work. And, you know, they include the insecure boss, the pessimist, the passive aggressive peer, the know-it-all, right? People, the sort of personalities we know really well, also that we've probably been at some point in our career as well. Um, but that really, this, these were the archetypes I really structured the book around and structured the advice around because that was what I was hearing from people that they needed, or what were the tips that research and experience have shown us work with these specific types of behaviors. Did you see any correlation based on gender? So I didn't see necessarily a correlation that people fell into certain categories. I mean, there's, there is, um, you know, there are categories that, for example, the know-it-all, right? There's some, you know, mansplaining is a phenomenon many of us are familiar with. And we do know that men tend to be more overconfident than women. So that's a, that is an archetype that probably more often applies to men. Um, really where I tried to pay attention to the gender differences was really on the 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 tactics that one uses because what we know and this is an important part of the book is that we know that the tactics that work for one person they does not necessarily work in the same way for someone else who has different identity factors so a white man may be able to directly confront a biased coworker in an effective way, whereas a black woman would be labeled as with the angry black woman trope if if she did the same exact thing. So I really try to pay attention to the way that identity 
influences the tactics that we use and whether they're successful or not. And Amy, you write beautifully about how we really must work to get to the root cause of the behavior. And again, my work as a coach, rarely do I see that happening. (laughs) You know, it's very surface. It's very emotionally charged. This is part of human nature. But but what I love about your work here, you're saying, okay, let's take a step back. Let's really focus and let's figure out the root cause. So tell me more about that. Yeah, and and it, it yeah, I agree. I do I do. I have a very small leadership coaching practice as well and and I see that um people when they're dealing with a difficult coworker, their explanation for their the other person's behavior tends to be very surface. And this is actually this is a social social psychology phenomenon that we see which is that when we make a mistake or when we do something let's say show up late to a meeting, we think about all the the factors that led to that. You know, there was an accident on my way to work. So I was stuck in traffic or I was in a meeting that held over that I really couldn't get out of. When someone else does that, we just assume they're disrespectful and tardy, right? Like, oh, there's someone who's late, right? We we come up with the most simple explanations for someone else's behavior. And oftentimes we're not even curious as to why they exhibited the behavior that they did. So to, let's take, for example, someone who's passive aggressive, right? We just immediately think, well, they're a passive aggressive person, right? They're maybe they're afraid of conflict. And, and we have these sort of dismissive explanations. But what I found, and, and this is a big tenet of the book, is that in order to have empathy and, and compassion for the other person, which is not just good for them, but is actually a strategic move for you in terms of trying to improve the relationship or shift the dynamic, is that it helps to understand what often drives that sort of behavior. So what would cause someone to you know, be overly pessimistic or someone to be insecure? And that does not mean you're playing armchair psychologist, right? You're not thinking, well, you know, they probably had parents who didn't love them, right? Like you're not getting that (laughs) into that sort of line of thinking, but you're trying to come up with rational explanations for why they would behave the way they do that will then inform the tactics that you choose to use in addressing the dynamic between you two. Well, I'm so grateful that you're sharing that technique because the truth is we can't mind read. And as you said, we often jump to conclusions. So just being open, tell me more, and being curious can really um, help you discover the root cause and and whatever the situation is, more clarity. So thank you for that. Yeah. Well, and, and I'll just add to that because I do think that it's it's not just about empathy, but it is about understanding that there are behaviors that we think are completely inappropriate, right? That And that's something I hear all the time is that, oh, this person did this. Isn't that horribly inappropriate? And it's like, well, they thought it was appropriate. So let, let's sort of dig into why they might have actually done that, why they would think it's appropriate, why they think it's an okay way to behave rather than just sort of slapping a dismissive label on that behavior and and moving away from the judgment and more, as you say, the curiosity, asking the questions, understanding what is the problem? What's the actual problem between us that needs to be solved? Amy Gallo will be right back after a quick break. Hello there, it's Caroline Dowd Higgins. I know that hiring the right speaker for your event is a tremendous responsibility. 
you need a speaker who can customize content to meet your goals and someone who will work within your budget and engage your audience. Meeting planners around the world have recognized me for being easy to work with and uniquely suited to create dynamic programming for your needs. My style is high energy and engaging with practical takeaways that participants can implement in their lives and careers immediately. Whether you're looking to retain or grow top talent, create healthy workplace cultures, or prevent burnout in your organization, I create customized content to help recharge, reignite, or reinvent your career. From the boardroom to the training room or the convention hall, I will help your audience thrive. Let's talk about how I can help you achieve your special event goals. You can find me at carolinedowdhiggins.com. Amy, you gave us so many good things to ponder. And I think often the power of the pause and giving space for someone else to share or inquiring with curiosity, tell me more. But I want to tap your expertise because you actually share tactics that we can try when dealing with a difficult coworker. So maybe you can set up a, a, a hypothetical scenario, probably something we can all relate to, and, and how you would begin to, um, to embark upon a solution. Sure. So let's let's talk about one of the the archetypes, the pessimist, because I think this is this is the the type of um, you know this is a kind of person that we we often encounter as someone who is a cynic or a complainer, the naysayer, someone who just always is like this is going to fail, right? And that's it, it's very frustrating, especially if you're working in an environment where there's an imperative to be innovative or to try new things, which uh, let's be honest, are most work environments these days. So, you know, let's say you have a colleague who's just every new idea that comes up, every meeting, they're just pointing out what will go wrong, uh, why ideas will fail. They might even say, oh, we've tried that before. And, you know, the first step in dealing with that behavior is to understand that there are probably good reasons that they are doing what they're doing. And it may be that they're anxious. It may be that um, they have legitimate concerns, right? A little cynicism can be very healthy, even even necessary. Um, And so the first step is to really ask yourself, well, what's actually problematic about that behavior? What, instead of just saying, again, dismissive labeling, oh, they're so pessimistic, they're so negative. It's like, okay, well, what's actually causing problems? Is it shutting down the conversation? Is it, um, you know, impeding the team from coming up with innovative ideas, which is what you're supposed to do? Um, You know, or is it just that their comments are irritating? Like find out, you know, really find out from, by examining with yourself, like what is it that are the problematic behaviors that you want to address? And then one of the tactics I think that works really well with a pessimist, just in terms of trying to sort of open up the dynamic between you, because pessimists often feel like they have to be the one to point out the risks and point out the problems because everyone else is Pollyanna-ish and just sort of not being overly positive and overly optimistic. So they feel like they need to balance. And so if you can sort of ask yourself, well, what is it they're actually bringing to the table with that negativity? Like, what is it that actually is 
is useful about that pessimism? And is it filling a hole in in the team or in the organization that may be overly optimistic? So, you know, really trying to reframe their pessimism and their comments as a gift, not fully, right? Let's be realistic because there probably are negative consequences as well. But are there aspects of it that are really positive? So, Amy, I'm going to ask you to role play with yourself. (laughs) Might you give us a phrase or two, you know, a little mini script so our listeners around the world can say, oh, I get it. That's how I can open up this conversation without being volatile, right? And and causing some emotional angst. Yeah. So one, I think you want to acknowledge the the risk, right? So you might even say, like, let's say they they point, you come up with a new idea. I come up with a new idea and the pessimist says, oh, that will never work. We've tried something like that a zillion times, right? And it can be tempting to be like, do you have to be so negative or to just ignore them and move on? And instead, you want to sort of validate, I hear you, that you think this won't work. And um, I want to understand a little bit more about that. So rather than dismissing, signaling that you're going to engage and then saying, okay, so what do you think we could do to prevent the outcome you're predicting? Or what would need to be true for this to succeed? So rather than getting into a this will succeed, no, this will fail kind of tug of war, you want to engage them in what's causing you to say that, right? Um, Or you want to even give them a a sense of agency, because a lot of times pessimists don't feel like they have a lot of control over the outcome. So, you know, you can say if you're unhappy with the direction we're taking this in, let's discuss what steps you can take to change the situation. Right. Like, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how we might proceed. Um, Go ahead. No, I love that because it de-escalates the emotion, the drama, and validates the person. So you're listening to them and really digging deeper. Tell me more. Exactly. And I think the other part is you're you're also, uh, you know, aligning with them a little bit. So you might even say there's part of me that agrees with you that this might not work. And another part of me thinks it will. Let's tease out both perspectives. So then it's not about Are you being heard? Am I being heard? Who's right? Who's wrong? But it's like, okay, yeah, that's a valid perspective. Let's tease it out together so we can come to a decision about how to proceed. Amy, I have to ask, because we are now uh, toggling in this hybrid, remote, in-person world of work that has changed everything that we know about the workplace dramatically. Has this exacerbated how we get along with people or, or not? Yeah. I mean, this is... I would say yes, for sure. And there's a there's a couple reasons why. Um, you know, number one, I think that the virtual interaction, when you're missing all of the nonverbal cues that we usually get from one another, it's just these these interactions become so much more ripe for misunderstanding and misinterpretation. You know, I I talk in in the book, I tell the story of someone who was interacting with someone over Zoom and they kept they felt like the person was rolling their eyes at them every few minutes and they were just so offended and it led to all of these sort of negative interactions between um, the two people and eventually what she found out was that the person actually had a clock above their desk and they were looking at the clock and trying to do so quickly so that they weren't you know so they were still paying attention to the conversation um, and that's the kind of thing, if you're sitting in a room with someone, you genuinely, genuinely get a sense of why they're behaving because you have a shared context and you're able to pick up on those nonverbals. 
you know, the other element of virtual interactions or even hybrid interactions that that are add to sort of the complications in our interactions is that we tend to let things fester for longer. So, you know, when something small happens instead of touching base about it at the end of a meeting or, um, you know, catching one another in the hallway saying, hey, what happened there? You know, we think, oh, well, next time I see them in person, if we're in hybrid, or we think, oh, you know, do I really need to set up a Zoom call to discuss that? So we tend to let things fester much more in these environments. And because the stakes, the sort of, um, you know, the effort it takes to address something feels much higher. That's a higher hurdle to actually inter you know, address something with someone on on a Zoom call versus just catching them in the hallway or, you know, chatting with them, um, uh, you know, in, in a side conversation by your desk. So it, I do think it's made it, um, it's made it worse. There are some benefits, which is that, you know, I think the, um, you know, people understand that they do need to be more intentional. People can, and about the ways they interact. So they might, for example, be more communicative with someone than they, they might not have if they were just sitting next to them. You might take fewer shortcuts um, in your interactions. But more often than not, I find that we try to interact with people exactly the same way we did when we were in person. And that leaves a lot of room for misunderstanding. Amy, the book is chock filled with specific action steps and tactical information. And I'd love for you to distill it down to one do and one don't when working with someone that you find difficult. Oh God. Okay. That's, that's hard. <laughs> Cause the, book, bet, the book is full of hundreds of do's and don'ts, but I will say the one do that I find so helpful is do experiment with different tactics in trying to improve the dynamic. So I think oftentimes what I see people say is, oh, I'm, I've been dealing with this person and I tried something and it didn't work. So I'm done. Right. Like they just sort of give up. And what I really want to encourage people to do is, is take the menu of tactics that I offer in each chapter, try one or two for a week, for two weeks, for a month, learn what you have to learn, and then try again, right? This, this is an iterative process. This is not just a one and, one and done. Um, and then the don't, I would say, it, it's tricky because I use these archetypes, but I would say don't label the other person. So don't decide they're a passive aggressive jerk or they're insecure. You know, the the archetypes are meant to be an understanding, like a way to help you get at the root causes of the behavior as we were talking about before. They're not meant to be dismissive labels that let you categorize all of your coworkers into into these awful uh, behaviors or or archetypes, but rather help you to sort of increase the understanding. Amy Gallo, I always learn so much from you, and today you did not disappoint. Your amazing new book is called Getting Along, How to Work with Anyone, Even Difficult People. And I'm so pleased that you spent time with me and this global audience today. And I want to tell our listeners how they can buy your book. 
It is available on Amazon and all major book retailers. And my friends listening, if you want to buy volume for your organization, you can also do volume book orders at hbr.org. I'm seriously thinking about this, Amy. I think everyone in my organization needs a copy of this book. (laughs) That would be fantastic. Yeah, yeah, but truly, I, I learned so much from you. And I'm so grateful that you spent time with me today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation. And if you like the show, subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or SoundCloud. And even better, leave a review because this helps new listeners find us online. And a special thanks to my podcast colleagues, Laura Deck, Executive Director of Publicity and Communications, and Claire McInerney, Executive Producer. Thank you for making this show awesome for our global audience. I'm Caroline Dowd-Higgins. Thanks for listening.